Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. I am joined as always as usual by uh, Sarah Bae Jung of Bowdoin College. Sarah, how is the beginning of the fall 2018 term treating you? Uh, Very well. It started quite hot. So I am very pleased that this week we seem to have returned to our usual New England fall weather for September. That's very good. When you said it started off hot, I thought you meant in the fashion that my semester has started off hot, which is to say I am disoriented by the amount of activity and like the sudden shock of being in semester activities from from a nice long lazy summer well, um, well that too but it, it has been like having that experience but but i don't know what it's like been like in boston i think even worse but it's been like doing that on the sun here like uh, <laughs> you know uh until like this last week which i am really not cut out for yeah, it's been it's been nasty hot down here as well. And uh, I am joined as well by Harvey Young of Boston University. Harvey, how are you doing? Finally, cool. It's been it's been blazingly hot. It's like geostorm. I mean, it's, I don't know what's going on. Global warming. Something's happening. But I've never experienced anything like this before. Um, I am so thrilled to hear you cite <laughs> Geo, Geostorm on the podcast. The, but that's right. In Geostorm, there's both like waves of ice that turn people like instantly freeze people. And then there's also just like volcanic eruptions that happen spontaneously. I'm sorry to hear that that's happening to Boston, but it's happening everywhere. We will add the link to the podcast uh, websites for people to check out Geostorms. Worth checking out. Listen, let's do a Geostorm segment at some point. Uh, in this in this season of the podcast. Um, uh, today, we have some really interesting stuff to talk about. Uh, we read Amelia Jones's article in the new TDR on the conceptual body. Um, we watched the first part of the stream produced by the Goodman Theater of 2666, the theatrical adaptation of the novel um, by Roberto Bolaño, um, Uh, And we are going to talk about graduate student advice and mentoring. Um, We read the tweet essay by uh, Keila Wazana Tompkins, um, uh, who's a gender and women's studies professor at Pomona College, and she gives some great advice to first-generation graduate students. We're going to talk about all of those things, plus our drafts. Before we get to that, just a few news items to check in about. There was a terrific event uh, featuring the work of Maria Irene uh, Fornes, and that was uh, covered in the New York Times. I believe that there was a 12-hour continuous production of her work that was attended by some people in our field, and this was accompanied by some really great journalism about the the career of this um, incredibly important playwright. There have been some interesting moves in in the field. Um, this happened over the summer or was announced over the summer, but uh, Samer El Saber uh, is, is taking a job at Stanford University, moving from Florida State to Stanford. And then this week, I was interested to see that uh, Darren Gobert is... Um, is taking a job at Duke. Um, He was at York um, and has been at York for 15 years and is now joining Esther Kim Lee at Duke in their department of of theater, um, which is pretty big news, I think, in the field. Um, Duke has been trying to hire scholars in that department for a couple of years, and hiring Esther Kim Lee and Darren Gobert, in my mind, makes Duke a, a really big player in our field going forward. I would be surprised if they weren't going to follow that up with some searches to, you know, add some perhaps junior faculty. Um, this is also a bit of old news, but there was an there's an obituary of Mel Gordon in the New York Times that was printed back in March. Mel Gordon was a really interesting theater historian and author. Um, I know his work from his fascinating book on the Grand Guignol and another really important um, collection of Commedia dell'arte scenarios. But I recommend people check that out. He was at Berkeley for many, many years and and passed away, um, I believe, earlier this year in in 2018. Just to uh, make people aware, Brian Herrera, who people will know previously through his blog, Stinky Lulu, and now through his uh, Twitter feed, at Stinky Lulu, has initiated a... So he has a, now has a newsletter that goes out, um, I think it's weekly or, or uh, bi-weekly, 
Um, but he started this thing called Theater Click. That's theater, mm -hmm. R-E-C-L-I-Q-U-E. Uh, hashtag Theater Click, um, where people can tag and amplify great new writing um, about theater, on, specifically on Twitter. And so he, he's been doing a, a great job of kind of collecting that uh, weekly and, and making it available. So I recommend if people haven't already found that or aren't already using it to, to check that out. It's a great way to find kind of new work and get a little, you know, especially as all our semesters get busier and busier, a kind of, uh, it's like cliff notes for the, for the social media <laughs> of the field, which I really appreciate. So thanks, thanks to Brian for, for that initiative. Well, why don't we move right into our first topic? So in the new TDR, there's an article by Amelia Jones entitled Encountering the Conceptual Body or a Theory of When, Where, and How Art Means. I thought this was really fascinating. It was a really interesting read. The article is both sort of specific in its ambitions and also incredibly sweeping in, in what it sets out to do or the claims that it makes about the status and the function of the body in live art. So just to give a kind of setup of what the argument is, ostensibly at the beginning, Jones is trying to refute the categorical distinction between conceptual art or idea art and body art. Um, and that, you know, if you take the article on those terms, it seems like it might be a somewhat provincial concern of art criticism, right? Do we need to distinguish um, art that's about ideas or concepts from art that engages the body in sort of explicit or primary ways? Um, but she's doing much more than that. What she does is to try to surpass this distinction by framing this concept she calls encountering. And encountering... Um, as the title suggests, is a kind of basis for a new theory of how to understand the way that art creates meaning. Um, in a somewhat more um, specific sense, she assimilates, in my reading, she assimilates situational understandings of art and contextual understandings of art to Badiou's notion of the event. So this is from page 15. Uh, she says that the framework of encountering suggests an inextricable immersion of the artist's body in action, in social space, mobilizing interactions that defined personal group and larger social identities and modes of empowerment. So she's citing Badiou extensively in Badiou on the event. She draws comparisons between this notion and what she sees to be the governing ideas of art, including uh, process art, um, situationist art, participatory art, body art, performance art, con uh, performativity, it becomes a rather capacious and sort of sweeping term. And I think that the sort of, depending on where you are in the article, the project can seem to be to fold the body back into a more I don't know, a more sort of generous and less um, oppositional relationship to idea art. Um, but it also seems to be a kind of, you know, grand totalizing interpretive term um, at other places. And in certain ways reminds me of the way that the, the term of performance actually emerges in performance theory by Richard Schechner in, in his essays of the, of the 70s and 80s. So encountering over the course of this article becomes this kind of new term that does a whole lot of things at once. Um, so I, I'm really curious to know what you guys thought about this. Um, I found it frustrating at times. I felt like there was some ambiguity in some of the connections made among these terms that made it hard for me to trace what was going on. And I also had, a, you know, I think I think going into the article, I expected there to be more of a careful account of how the body was a term that emerged over the time period that she's looking at, really the 1950s through the 21st century. And in the end, I felt as though the body was not actually examined in its specificity. The body is sort of a self-evident term in, in this article. And so it, it made me want to know more about how it comes to be possible to think of the body in the way that we use it in art academia discourse. Um, so that's sort of my first take on it. Um, what did you guys think? 
Well, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in uh, precisely with, uh, with this kind of question of the body um, and your concern there, panel, because I think that what's interesting about this piece is not just the article itself, but in the context of Jones's other work, particularly in light of her other writings, you know, uh, about the body and performance and um, presence in absentia about reading and, and observing and quote unquote encountering um, the body art through documentation, right? Which this essay uh, inverts some of those earlier arguments, um, though not explicitly, which I found kind of interesting. But it's but it's interesting, like the when, when you talk about like the body not being defined in its specificity as a as a as a larger entity and an abstract entity. That's true in part because at the very end of the article, Jones substitutes her own body. And she describes this kind of trajectory from 1960s conceptual and body art to contemporary work, including a piece that she describes going to and seeing and experiencing. Um, this is uh, uh, Monica Meyer's um, El Tedodero, uh, right, the clothesline, um, as, as something that shifts her focus back towards herself as a vulnerable body, right? And so she describes a kind of revelation and understanding uh, of, of herself and her own trajectory, presumably from, uh, from earlier times to the, to the current moment as, as being you know, someone who experienced harassment in, in any number of ways, which she details in the last two paragraphs of, of the essay. And so I, I found like, I didn't predict that ending. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really it, that uh, that kind of that's not where the essay seems to be going. Um, in part because it does delve so deeply into theory and also into what felt for much of the essay like pretty well established theoretical connections and lines. Um, it reminded me a lot of Dwight Conkergood's use of uh, encounter and this notion of encountering and and uh, embodiment as, as a as a as an essential form of of understanding art and performance, um, though he comes at it from a slightly different point. But then at the end, I really feel like this kind of major shift happens in relation to this one particular work that that it's really interesting to go back and read the, those final paragraphs and then go back and, and look at the essay as a whole, because you can see how she's sort of slowly building to that moment without ever, I think, kind of giving it away so that it has a certain kind of political, which I think is its intention, political impact at the conclusion. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll agree with that. Uh, I mean, there, the, that last section in which uh, she uh, sort of right, discloses uh, sort of her experiences uh, with harassment, um, you know, will catch you by surprise. And there's a way in which I think that the conversation could center on like the sort of Me Too moment, uh, which I don't think is, is her intention. Uh, what I noticed when I first began reading the article was that at first I felt like I had known a lot of these things before, uh, and and she sort of skips around a bit. But you know, if, if you're familiar with the body of her work, you know, it's really this push to actually look at the performance dimension within uh, conceptual art and and and, and to change the way that. Uh, art theorists and art makers think about the work they're doing through the lens and language performance. What I found really interesting here uh, was her invocation of the body was really less about the body of the artist, uh, but more so the body of the spectator. Uh, so that you know, she's, she returns again and again and again to uh, the experiences of spectators who are um, co-participants in the making of the artwork itself. Um, and I think that for that reason, when she ends, and this is what Sarah was gesturing toward, right? You know, like when she ends uh, talking about her own experiences um, uh, with harassment, you know, sort of triggered by um, the spectators and audience members sort of writing their own experiences of harassment as, as part of this mayor piece, uh, I think that you can see where that's where uh, the argument lands, right? Because you can see and understand and appreciate the fact that the spectators uh, and their embodied presence and their embodied experiences are such a core part of conceptual art making. Yeah, I think that's an interesting line of thought to pursue um, because what in the course of reading and trying to figure out what the body was in this article, there are moments where the it, it becomes quite abstract. So this is on page 21. Um, and she, it's coming out of a discussion of um, Bouriaud and um, the, the artist Valley Export. 
Um, she says, this is Jones, whether or not the body is mentioned in the interrelated cases of context, art, relational aesthetics, and social practice, and this is what I'm stressing, the artist's body, whether literally live as part of the work or not, is in one way or another activating the bodies of audience members who become explicit participants in the construction of meaning and value. And so she starts by anchoring these types of situations in artworks where um, you know spectators in a gallery are invited to you know walk into a sort of cavity that seems like a, the vagina of a large supine woman and in that way a kind of you know hyper consciousness of one's own body and one's own social status is activated but I think that when she extends it into you know documentation and makes it clear that it's not necessarily the body of the artist in its presence and its, you know, temporality in the gallery space, but rather a kind of set of different ways of experiencing the body overtly that she's talking about, that really you could argue that um, a whole range of different art counts as conceptual body art in this way. Um, And in a way, I think that might be a kind of problem with the framework because if your if your definition is that in some way or another the body of the artist is ending up um, uh, activating the bodies of audience members you could have all sorts of different artistic situations in which that is true and so I it, it left me again with the question of you know what would count as sort of conceptual body art? Would there be some sort of limiting term? I, I kept thinking of Rebecca Schneider's book, *The Explicit Body in Performance*, and you know, sort of feminist body art of the 1990s, where the you know live co-present uh, uh, situation of the artist's body is a very important part of the experience. But in this case, it seems like the body could be anywhere. It could be many different people's bodies. Um, I wondered what the sort of limitations were on this. Well, as, I'm re- as I read the article, I think the, the, the focus that, that you're raising, which is uh, how do these terms draw parameters or create certain categories of art, I think is, is in some ways what, what Jones is moving away from. So, I mean, I think that in some ways the, the use of body here is functions in the way that performance, right, uh, functions uh, for Schechner or like, you know, um, uh, John McKenzie's liminal norm, right? It's like, what does it mean to look, what does it mean to look at certain things as body art rather than creating a limited, limiting, you know, term that's like, oh, that is or is not body art. And I think for what Jones is doing and where the real move forward is in this piece is, is to then say, okay, so in some ways she's moving away from what artists are doing explicitly or are attempting or are intending necessarily and looking more at like, what is the effect? And so if the effect is that an artist creates a certain kind of bodily encounter, whether present or not, whether realized in a way that we might recognize as body art in its kind of historical genealogies to the sixties and beyond or not, that in fact, in that moment, if the if the audience or the spectators or the viewer is activated in a particular way and that and that particular way is itself a bodily response then then the work falls within that and what does it mean to look at that dynamic and then in place of an abstract viewer jones puts herself in the midst of what she then refers to i think later on as uh coalitional networks of participants who can choose to expand the dialogue about harassment and violence against women in ways that changes and potentially the structures of power that call for strategies of resistance. And and, along those lines, I wonder, what is the possibility of sort of collective understanding, you know, within this framework of encountering. Uh, and uh, so Jones writes, sort of toward the end of the article, uh, this, and this is inspired by uh, this Mayer piece, uh, where she um, looks to this, and she qu- to quote, the dream of collective understanding and action that is not fascist, racist, misogynistic, or xenophobic. Uh, and I'm just wondering, um, you know, when you're not shifting the equation, but you're putting a spotlight on that moment of encounter uh, uh, that's, uh, 
privileging or at least uh, uh, offering a sense of authority to the experience of the spectator in negotiation with the conceptual artwork itself, um, you know, what is the possibility of there being a collective similar response? And I, I guess there's a way in which you can say you can see it when people are asked to reflect in a similar, like in a journal uh, about their experiences witnessing a piece. And you can, you can see an alignment of your thought and your thinking with others. Uh, but what are other possibilities um, outside of journaling, outside of uh, moments in which the spectator can speak back to the artist or speak back to one another to share how they're seeing and experiencing the work, um, how they have encountered it? That's a good question. I think you might be getting at something that I was also thinking about, Harvey, which is that you're 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 framing this in terms of what are the what's the potential for a sort of collective moment or a moment that maybe transcends one's individual experience. I guess so. I mean, or is there a desire for a collective experience or collective understanding, uh, or is it more individual? Um, I mean, my sense from her article is that it's. Uh, you walk in and you sort of unexpectedly realize that you are part of this sort of collective experience um, that uh, is is, is uh, made possible, not triggered, but uh, you're, you're, you're newly made aware or, or newly reminded of it uh, based upon uh, your negotiation with the artwork itself. I mean, that was just my reading of it. I'm not sure if that's correct. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, it, it, it might be related to my own concern with what the, how this works as a kind of account of the political efficacy of some of these works. There are moments in the article where she argues that the that this is a that encountering is a way that we can understand the sort of reciprocity between artistic or aesthetic experience and activism. And by by using Badiou's event um, as a sort of central theoretical reference and a and a, and central, a central component of encounter. I at least expect that this is a, partly an account of the sort of radical transformational potential of some of this art. Um, but it, in at least in the you know that final page, it it sort of comes down to an individual, a sort of minor event, which would be at least the way I understand her account, a sort of personal realization or a kind of event on the personal level, which would seem to have a limited potential to then um, spark collective action, you know, real forceful political um, uh, activity. Does that make sense? I, she, I think that it, it ends up feeling like it's a, a more kind of personal um, experience that she's giving an account of rather than um, explaining how some of these artistic projects could actually be part of the types of, you know, history making uh, developments that Badiou seems to be concerned with in his broader theory of event. Personally, I, d I don't feel qualified to speak about the the activist potential of, uh, of 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 any one individual work. I think that the I think that between the individual and the collective is is this idea of the coalitional, and I think what what Jones is reading or articulating in the context of this work is the is the radical potential for um, for powerful self-realization, and and implied within that is is realizations really among women audiences, um, and and that in some ways she's less concerned or seems less concerned with the ways in which wider you know, specific political outcomes might result and is much more interested in what is the, what is the fundamental understanding that is, you know, that is transformed by, by, but by particularly marginalized and, 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 and harassed groups. I mean, she sort of frames it in those. So, so like, it's, it's actually not about like what the political left is going to band together to do. It's really about like what happens when queers and women and people of color and poor people encounter work that changes their understandings of themselves in a social context and gives them moments, however individual or, or minor, right, um, of, 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 of potential and power and, and, and realization of what, and, and of larger systemic uh, oppressions and that that those understandings might yield something something further that I think puts it on the sort of spectrum of moving towards you know the Badu's event. 
Well, why don't we move on? Um, great. That was great. Uh, from, that was from this discussion into uh, our second topic. Um, and so this is this is another one of these moments where reminding me of our early segment on Hamilton where we're going to speak about this piece of art having seen a portion of it um, in a video stream we watched the <laughs> first we watched the first part of the Goodman Theater's production of 26, uh, 2666 which is um, adapted from the novel by Roberto Bolaño um, the the theatrical work was an adaptation based on a translation by Natasha Wimmer it was directed by Robert Falls and Seth Bockley um, uh, for the Goodman Theater and then made freely available on this stream. So listeners can go to the Goodman Theater's website and watch this entire theatrical piece, which runs in totality, I think, around five and a half hours, but it's broken up into five parts. We watched part one, the part about the academics. Um, and so there's the a most lot that we part. could... In the, yeah, the, the part most likely to gratify um, three academics, including two department chairs, just like the four academics in the in the piece. Um, there's a lot to talk about here. And again, we'll be limited in our ability to discuss this critically, not having seen the whole thing. Um, but it occurs to me that there's a lot going on that has to do with um, adaptation in a number of ways. It's a theatrical adaptation of a novel, which is not a totally common enterprise. Um, and then it is also a, a video experience, a sort of home viewing experience that we had of a, of a live theatrical production. Um, the themes of this um, have a lot of intersection with uh, uh, Patricia Yabara's book that we discussed in the last episode. It centers around, or there's a kind of moving towards the... Um, the fact of femicide in um, Mexico in the uh, maquiladora zones. So there's a lot going on here. Um, Sarah, is there what? What was your take um, watching this? And were you looking? Were you thinking more about the content of the play or the kind of formal uh, contours of the experience of watching it the way that you did? Well, I, I would say I kind of went back and forth between those those two things. Um, so I, I tried to be really theatrical about my watching, right? So I, I, <laughs> I turned off the lights and I sat and I tried really hard to just, you know, focus on, on the TV screen. Um, and I want to say uh, in that regard, first, a, a thank you to the Goodman Theater for making this available and, and whoever financially supported that, because I think that one of the things that these kinds of resources do is make work available to much wider audiences, including people who can't physically get to, to Chicago or even physically get to the theater. Um, I thought they did an, a really nice job of recording it. The sound levels were pretty even, which can sometimes come up. The, the multi-camera setup didn't seem to be intrusive or excessive in that way. So I, 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 I thought that they did a, pr a pretty nice job. Um, at the same time, I was really struck at least for about the first half to two thirds of it, that particularly the kind of presentational, here's who I am and here's what I think, and you know the the sort of translation of novel uh, prose description to first person direct address is is one of the forms that I think translates the least well to the video setup. And, and feels the least theatrical. Um, and so I, I sort of struggled with the first part of this just because nothing, no one seemed to be doing anything, right? They talked about doing things. And much of what they talked about doing was all about the kind of sexualization of the one female uh, academic who was present. And so, 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 you know, a lot of it is just about sort of working out desire. And in fact, that's, you know, the, the sort of, some total of how that of that opening hap you know happens like that's the most action we get in the in the first section um and also i, I will say just as a sort of final thing uh, the way in which she is conveyed as an academic um is is completely uh below the way all of the men are presented she's the least intelligent She's the least driven. She's not ambitious. She kind of ends up there by accident. Um, she's a graduate student when she starts. You know what I mean? Like, and, and the fact of the matter is that she ends up sleeping with everybody by 
the end of the first the first segment. So I have no idea how to negotiate that, having not you know read the novel uh, previously. So I don't know if that's if that is like you know allegorical that gets conveyed later, or if this is part of a larger trajectory. But those were my sort of I don't know initial responses. What did you guys think? Did you enjoy watching the video? No, I I really didn't. <laughs> I, I will I will admit that. Uh, I I had the opportunity to see the performance in in Chicago, uh, but I, I I didn't accept it. Uh, I mean, well, only because I, I knew the backstory of it. it. It's it's basically a an adaptation that was financed by a person who won the lottery. The, 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 um, a a man won two hundred and fifty nine million dollars, and his favorite book was this one, and he offered the Goodman um, uh, the opportunity to. Uh, produced it uh, with the agreement that he financed the entire, like cover the entire cost of it, right? So, so this this lottery millionaire uh, 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 person just came along and was like, you know, I will write out a check for you to do this. And the cool thing about it is, on the one hand, you can say, like, here's a chance for a theater company to really take a risk without actually worrying about, um, um, you know, whether or not this appeals to subscribers or you know, uh, single ticket buyers. Uh, but on the other hand, you begin to question, well, is this the piece that you would have programmed if it wasn't free, right? Uh, and then also, because of the tightened production timeline, it wasn't as workshopped as it could have been. So, so Chris Jones, who's the uh, senior critic for the Tribune, uh, in his review noted, you know, he's like, there's greater novels that still have yet to be dramatized, and then those still succeeded in being uh, produced uh, with decisive cuts with a bit more action, essentially, uh, that came in under five hours. Uh, but yeah, yeah, so I, did, I didn't really enjoy this piece. <laughs> That's uh, well. I appreciate your candor, Harvey. Um, I had I had sort of mixed experiences or mixed feelings watching it. I, I shared the concern or the the experience of feeling like this is very clearly a novel adapted to the stage. So it's a lot of people talking. the The staging is. I mean, it's very skillful and sophisticated. And there's a device in the first part where the sort of narrative voice, the narrative voice is picked up by other characters in this quartet. So it's a quartet of academics who are obsessed with this German novelist who's, um, you know, written very interesting books about which we know nothing and is no, no one knows about his life. And so the four of them sort of band together to try to find him. And there's, you know, there is theatricality in the way they divvy up the sort of um, narrative exposition so that, you know, one character will talk about what was going on in the interior life of the other. And I watched ahead to part two, and there's, you know, also theatricality of sort of um, multiplying of the roles so that it, you know, two actors on stage are are managing the, the storytelling part that involves many different characters. Um, the the gender concerns I think are are valid though I think again this is a situation where you have to perhaps withhold judgment until we see the entire thing and perhaps there's something going on with the um, rather masculine um, authorial uh, point of view that I think manifests in the types of um, representations of the of the female characters that Sarah was talking about um, I, I I don't know the question arose to me. Why, why make a play out of a novel ever? And, and, you know, why this one? Harvey, I was aware of the funding of this by Roy Cockrum, the Episcopal monk who won the Powerball and then decided to fund Ambitious Theater, which is awesome. Like, that's amazing. Like, he should, everyone who experiences, has a windfall like that should give it to Ambitious Theater projects. Um, but I didn't know that it was his idea to create a theatrical version of this novel because he liked the novel. That's really revealing. Um, but it made me wonder what other stage adaptations of novels are there that we enjoy? Why, why do that? Why take a novel that you love and then put it on the stage? Um, especially if it's a kind of, you know, talky academic novel <laughs> like this one. Well, if you read through uh, some of um, Benalo's uh, other work and uh, and 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 this n- novel as well, there are lots of lines that one can imagine wanting to say or wanting to hear. Um, the problem is that um, you can almost hear them as they get spoken because because of how they are, right? Like um, 
you know, uh, it's, oh, it's hard to know another person. You know, we never really know another person. There are like some of these like that just sort of like have their quotation marks kind of um, scream. Nothing is ever behind us is another one that comes up in this. And, and I can understand like, like reading some of, uh, of, of his other stuff, the, the, the desire for that kind of, um, you know, there's some really wonderful, there were some great lines that you might think you could kind of build a, build a show around. I saw a great, I mean, I really liked Laurie Anderson's adaptation of Moby Dick back in the day. That was super fun. I mean, it, I don't think it necessarily had a whole lot to do with the novel or was a, 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 an adaptation per se, but there was an amazing dance piece in the middle of it uh, by Ahab uh, on crutches, which was kind of spectacular. I mean, I, I, do, I, I suspect that there is a way in which like your favorite novel uh, or book, you would love to have the opportunity to enter that world in a three-dimensional way. Yeah, so, you know, to have it up on its feet, you know, you think the characters that you've imagined in your head, to have them uh, played by flesh and blood uh, individuals who are only feet away from you, I, I, can, I can imagine that being extraordinary. Like, think, think about the popularity of, um, of, um, of the Lord of the Rings film adaptations, right? You're like, wow, like, here's a chance for me to actually see what I've been, what I've been envisioning on screen. Uh, or think about the, popu- the increasing popularity of those immersive um, uh, exhibitions like the Downton Abbey exhibition that was just uh, up in New York. Uh, there's a new Trolls one that's coming up soon, uh, where you, you can you can enter the filmic world um, in in a, in a three dimensional way. So I can see how that's that's appealing. Uh, to be a bit more generous, to go back to my, you know, I feel bad. I feel bad. I think I think it was the uh, it kind of there's moments where it's a parody of academia in that first part, and it just kind of hurts. It kind of burns. It burns if you're an academic. You're like we're not like that, and then you know, the audience Ooh. laughs at moments. You're like, but. They're laughing at yeah. us. They're laughing that at was, us. <laughs> an intolerable an combination of close reading and continental philosophy. It's <laughs> yes. a direct quote from one of that. And I was like, I was like, oh, it me. Yes, yes. But 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 I will say, my sense is that uh, this piece it actually you know in a pulp fiction esque way uh, sort of shifts you know in terms of characters and style. Uh, so it moves across its parts and you know w- with some of these sort of durational experiences of performance you know like if you focus upon um, you know 20 minutes uh, that's that's just a, a small bit of the six hour epic that this thing is you know so it's really about like being able to appreciate how it shifts and changes over time and I've and I know from talking with people that um, other parts are much more engaging than this than this first one uh, but we as academics we're pretty amazing people uh, and <laughs> And it didn't quite capture that. <laughs> so. Well, it's, I think it's, I always think that theatrical or filmic versions of academia are funny. And the point is not to, you know, give the readership or the audience a sense of what professors are really like. I think when, when <laughs> artists, when artists uh, deploy academics in their work, it, it is a sort of device. And so in this case, it's, you know, here are these people who are so fascinated by this one author. Um, and it's, you know, the point is not to show us what we're really like. Although I was interested that Sarah felt like she was implicated in, in some of the, in some of the sort of satirical edges of it. Um, but yeah, these are four at, you know, four grown adults, apparently whose entire lives are just determined by in like how much they love, love this one novelist. I mean, it reminded me it, it at least from what I could tell about the novel from the play, it reminded me of, um, Umberto Eco's Foucault's Pendulum, which sort of indulges in the business of publishing and academia a little bit. And then there are shades of, of sort of Iris Murdoch, um, in what I could tell about this as well. In other words, these characters are, they have intellectual interior lives. They're sort of determined by their ideas and pursuits and exploration. Um, their their sexual lives are a big part of what we learn about them. But I don't I don't have a feeling that this book is going or that this play is heading in a direction like an Iris Murdoch um, novel. But um, I, I at least I I felt like I saw some problems with it or I had some curiosity about the the point of the whole enterprise. Um, but I want to see the rest of it. Like it, 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 it engaged my curiosity enough and I was interested in the challenge of adapting it. Um, this major work, 
the impressed really impressed by the talents of the directors and the um the actors in a way that makes me want to you know keep watching and there's you know it's it's an interesting televisual experience there's there's some pretty high production values as as sarah mentioned you know it's a multi-camera setup where they obviously had had um planned out the shots to give you a sense of where the action is um some very cool you know title cards and music and everything it the sense i had of it was this is produced in a way that is is going to be consumable by an, an audience used to netflix and amazon video um you know you can watch this an hour at a time it's sort of like a mini series and i was interested in that kind of you know enter- entertainment product um, it's very well produced mm-hmm why don't we oh, okay. move on? If oh, we're, no, if we're segueing, I have a I have a really nice segue. So I mentioned that that please Milano um, uh, has like these really wonderful quotes. So I actually went hunting for just his quotes, right? Uh-huh. Um, and one of my favorites, I'll, I'll just say, was uh, if if you're going to say what you want to say, you're going to hear what you don't want to hear, which I think is <laughs> kind of a wonderful <laughs> wonderful. Part. And then I have one that is like the perfect segue to our next. Uh, our next topic, um, which is in, in, uh, in uh, uh, another work, The Savage Detectives. Um, he has this advice, write in the morning, revise in the afternoon, read at night, and spend the rest of your time exercising your diplomacy, stealth, and charm. <laughs> and so as we segue into advice for the new academic year, I'm like, I'm going to kind of go with this. I'm going to you know, write in the morning, revise in the afternoon, and, and read at night, and spend the rest of my time exercising diplomacy, stealth, and charm. Uh, it's the beginning of the new academic year. It is um, time when professors and students and graduate students are starting up the, the big effort of a whole year. Um, and we wanted to talk about advice for graduate students. Harvey brought to our attention this uh, tw- Twitter essay by Keela Wazana Tompkins. I think that I have the pronunciation of her first name correct because on her Twitter feed, it, there are pictures of ways that people have misspelled her name <laughs> on Starbucks cups, and it would suggest that it's pronounced Keela. Um, and so she gives advice to first-generation graduate students. Um, Harvey, do you want to sort of uh, tell us a little bit about more? Tell us a little bit more about what's in these tweets and ad- advice that this makes you think of. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what Keela uh, Tompkins does is, uh, within a series of tweets, offers advice, as panel just noted to first-generation graduate students, uh, essentially framed as advice I wish people had told me when I entered graduate school. Uh, and there's a long, long list, and, and we'll post this as there's beeping in the background behind me with construction. Um, uh, but several things that she notes that I think are worth sharing, You know, one is like make sure you find a mentor who can admit defeat, uh, demystify the process. Uh, another is uh, that it's important for graduate students to stay bilingual, and by that she means you know, that as you cultivate an ability to to speak uh, and uh, converse uh, in you know sort of theoretical language or critical language, also remember to maintain your own voice. Uh, you know, she also notes that um, you know that it's you know it's important for you to befriend your imposter syndrome, and there's a few parts to this, uh, but one of them is to. Um, you know, acknowledge that it exists, uh, but then you know, you let it visit with, let it visit you for five minutes, and push it away. Other times, imagine it's your voice on the shoulder, you know, you know, demanding that you be your best. Um, and the last thing that you know that I'm going to say right now, there's many more, is that she encourages uh, graduate students to find a therapist and to make sure they take care of their bodies. Um, so it was just you know really helpful advice for uh, incoming um, first generation or any any. Uh, first-year graduate student. What sort of advice would you share, uh, panel, uh, you know, to an incoming graduate student? Um, you know, I was the DGS of our master's program here for a few years, and so I found myself giving the same kinds of advice over and over again, and nothing, I I think, was nearly as insightful or um, empathetic as what's in this Twitter essay. Um, the, the frequent advice that I give is don't, don't overcommit uh, focus on your scholarship. There's a lot of a lot of activity you can get involved in, especially if in if you're in a performing arts environment. And while you should do some of that, you should be artistically engaged. I think it's very easy for people who are energetic, ambitious, and talented to just start saying yes to everything because they want to be involved, and then end up in a 
in a health and emotional crisis in the month of like March or April. Um, so be careful about that. And then I would, the other thing that I think graduate students should hear is that when you're in an event, like you have, there's an, you know, a, a, a guest scholar or an invited speaker, and we have a colloquium series here uh, where we bring scholars in, uh, you know, four or five times a year. Um, that you should listen, you should watch um, the work, but whether or not you ask a question, whether or not you speak up, which is a sort of high stakes moment and a difficult thing and a scary thing to do, you should be thinking about how to frame that question, the really good Q&A question, which is, you know, acknowledging the, you know, showing that you have taken on board what's been presented, thinking about it, and offer a question that's, you know, going to tell everybody in the room more if the author answers it correctly. It should be critical in the sense of you're, you know, you're you're not just completely convinced by everything you've heard, but generous at the same time. And I think that that was something I learned in graduate school, which was the sort of critical but generous question, um, which is its own sort of art form and and important, I think, to the kind of how you are in the room aspect of developing an academic career. Sarah, what do you think? What, what advice would you share to a uh, incoming first year grad student? So I think, I think there are kind of two, two dimensions. I mean, the first thing I would say is, I think it is very helpful to know what kind of, what you want to get out of this experience. Not just what kind of job you want to have at the end of it, but, but also like what kind of, what kind of things do you want to to take advantage of? And there's a one of her one of Tomkin's tweets that I thought was really uh, was was right on with this idea of like using the resources of the university to pursue a whole bunch of different potential outcomes. And and I think it's true. I mean, I think that what panel says about not doing too much is is right. But sometimes I think one of the most difficult things to figure out is how to prioritize different opportunities that that come along and to knowing when when it's worth extending yourself a little bit so you can say yes to the right kind of thing and i think going in with a clear goal of what kind of what again what kind of experience you want to have what kinds of things you want to learn what kind of in addition to what kind of outcomes because you know if you go to a certain kind of you want if you want a certain kind of career focusing on your scholarship and not worrying about your teaching is absolutely right um, you want to have a dip, slightly different kind of career or end up at a very, you know, at a different institution, you know, you want to have a really good record of teaching and, and what that looks like. And so knowing how to balance all of the different dimensions. Um, and the other thing is that I think there's been a lot more discussion about this, but, um, but as someone who had individual mentors um, and then, and then uh, needed to move beyond individuals, I, I think it's super important to build your network as 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 wide and as early as possible so certainly uh, fostering collaboration and, and uh, rather than competition among you and your cohort um, as much as you can uh, maintaining friendships outside ac academia um, and and connections with those people but also looking for for not just one person that you're going to go to with every question but a whole you know, set of people that you're going to go to with all different kinds of questions, some of whom might be in your field, some of whom might be in your institution, um, some of whom, you know, uh, might know more or less, and so that you always are, you can weigh different pieces. Because I think the one danger of, of advice is that everyone who gives you advice is giving you what worked for them. And, 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 and your number one people that you'll go to are your, are your professors and your mentors and your formal advisors. And, you know, who knows when, when they stopped graduate school. Um, things, things have changed. Uh, they might be very aware of those changes. They might be less aware of some changes. Their circumstances might be very different than yours. Um, but the context is always. So you want to be able to make sure that, that any piece of advice that you're getting you're understanding where it comes from and that you can put that in conversation with a lot of different different uh, sources of information so that you can kind of figure out, okay, what's the advice that works for me? Yeah. Just to respond to your um, 
point, Sarah, about thinking about what it is you want to get out of the experience. Um, I think that's that's really good. You're, you know, when I caution graduate students about not doing too much, it's very much, I think, you know, reflecting on my own experience and also watching their, watching, you know, sort of repeated experiences on the parts of the graduate students. But I think that's a really good thing to say, which is what do you want to get out of being in a PhD program or an MA program? Um, I have a colleague here, Mel Masir, um, who uh, she's in the English department here, and we have talked about podcasting stuff. And in the context of telling her students about this podcast and about how I would caution them not to not to take on something like this um, before they're tenured because it won't necessarily count towards promotion, et cetera, et cetera. She had the response of, well, that's, you know, it's pr- probably good, good advice, but knowing that you don't necessarily have a great um, statistical chance of getting a tenure track job, um, maybe you should think about engaging in this type of thing because it is rewarding to you in the moment and pleasurable in the moment. So, while it's fine for me to tell graduate students, you know, don't don't agree to be in a play and and dramaturg five different things during the year. You need to think about maybe what the longer trajectory is that you want for your life and what the things that are rewarding and sustaining for you are in the moment. But still, also don't overcommit. Yes, and and, and I would I would add uh, you know to the list of advice, you know, to to celebrate every milestone and the milestones will will change over time uh, but you know uh, go out for something like whatever you like to do if you like to kayak go kayaking if you like you know wine have have a nice glass of wine um, you know after your first class after you've turned in your first paper after you've uh, written your first book review I mean it, it, it's those things will sustain you it's 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 a marathon uh, academia is sort of this process of going from graduate school uh, into a career beyond, and and there's a lot of frustration. There's lots of anxiety. There's lots of sleepless nights, and you need to be able to stop and pause and reflect and reward yourself each time you've accomplished something. Because if you don't do that, you'll burn out. I think that's great advice. There's so much of the internalized sense of one's own inadequacy, and you know, yes, I did this, but I have to work so much harder if I'm going to get to the next phase. But getting through exams writing a completing a difficult 20 page 25 page paper for a class on a topic you didn't know these are major accomplishments and at least privately and hopefully with your fellow graduate students and mentors you can celebrate uh doing good work oh let me add one more thing and this is something when it comes to uh putting together a panel for a conference uh, my suggestion is uh, do not ask your cohort to join you in a panel Right. Do not sort of say, hey, we all wrote this paper for final in, in this class. Let, let's let's present at ATHA or ASTR or somewhere else. Uh, make an effort to uh, introduce yourself to other people in the field. And, 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 the, and the great secret of this is that uh, senior scholars um, love it when people email you uh, and say, hey, will you join a panel? Because senior scholars are often quite busy and and sometimes uh, um, just uh, not they don't have the capacity necessarily to to meet a deadline and, and assemble a panel. So it's like if someone were to email, um, I would say any of us, uh, and then to, to say, "Hey, I'm interested in putting together a panel for some conference. Uh, you know, would you join us?" Um, you know, that's a great way of building a network. It's a great way of getting your name out. Um, it, it also helps out a senior scholar who wants to present a paper but doesn't want to actually put together a panel themselves. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, why don't we move from that into the final segment of the podcast, which is our drafts. Whether you spell drafts D-R-A-F-T-S or D-R-A-U-G-H-T-S, this is what we're talking about. Um, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I'm a little bit rusty. It's been... (laughs) been, This has been puns with panel. (laughs) (laughs) This has been exploring... Yes, exploring spelling. Um... Uh, these are our thoughts in progress, reflections on our work, um, research or field oriented or teaching, um, uh, sort of thoughts in progress. Um, Sarah, would you like to start us off with your draft? Sure. So, um, so my draft is um, uh, a little bit further afield um, from from theater studies, um, as I usually am. But but my draft actually has to do with the U.S. Open. And particularly the 
the, the, the women's final um, and Serena Williams uh, and the umpire and the, the chair umpire, you know, and the code violations and all of that. And um, I was I was I was watching it and I was I was, you know, uh, I, I thought there was some really amazing tennis in, in, in the U.S. Open this year on both on the men's and women's side. And, and I enjoyed watching it very much. But I was really, um, I was really taken aback and then compelled to to watch and think about right this sort of final day and particularly uh, Williams is you know being called out on these violations which first cost her a point and then cost her um, a game and ultimately you know she lost um, the match uh, to Naomi Osaka. And, and precisely like sort of looking at her outburst and her uh, challenge to the chair umpire um, and, and thinking about it as a kind of performance in which um, the, her role as a mother, uh, she articulated that, the comparison with what men get charged with in terms of, of code violations versus what women get charged with. I mean, and for, for what appears to be a spontaneous Outbur- emotional outburst and, and, and real source of understandable frustration also became incredibly densely packed with other kinds of meaning. Um, and whether it was uh, intended or not, or something she was thinking about in another context or you know, completely spontaneous, it, it, for me was kind of irrelevant. It was, it was a kind of an extraordinary moment. And, and then in the way in which, um, and I, this actually I was thinking when, when we were talking about the, the Jones also, right? The, the ways in which the you know the bodies of performers uh, create this kind of spectacle and meaning, and then and then the way in which the crowd responded both to Williams, but then also to when Osaka was awarded the the you know the first place, and I mean I just found that whole event to be really striking on any number of different levels, and so I, I don't know that I have anything more compelling than to say I looked at that; it kind of blew my mind in a bunch of ways, and so I've been thinking about it ever since. Thank you. Yeah, that was a really remarkable moment and difficult to watch if you were watching it live. Yes. Yeah. Harvey, what's on your mind? What's on my mind? Um, well, just, just just triggered by uh, Sarah as we're thinking about uh, Naomi Osaka and uh, her being a, a Haitian Japanese woman uh, and thinking about what does that mean in terms of uh, conversations and discourse around race and colorism within Japan. Um, and, and And I think that there's there's a lot uh, to be discussed about her, uh, you know, um, uh, as as a person, uh, and 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 uh, as her career progresses, because she's, she's very young, she's only 20 years old. You know, what uh, conversations will arise? You know, what um, uh, ways of thinking around race uh, and biraciality will occur because of that? But but my 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 very uh, brief draft is I'm trying to figure out how to organize and host a workshop on how to go from associate professor to full professor. And I've realized I've never actually attended one of those workshops before. I've, I've gone to new grad student workshops. I've gone to new assistant professor workshops, but not one from associate to full. So I'm trying to think about what structure that should have. That's great. Yeah, there's a there being associate and and chairing a department and trying to figure out how I'm going to get my research done. Um, I would I, I could use a workshop like that. That sounds really interesting. Um, Does BU have those? I mean, are are you? No, I'm I'm, I'm organizing it through Atha. You know, okay. it's, it's going to be an Atha workshop. Because I don't. I mean, this is something that that you know I think has come up uh, that's been raised at Bowdoin, but I think it's a relatively recent um, thing that we're paying attention to, which is actually how you support faculty advancement. Uh, across a career span, right? So not only how to move from associate to full, but full to leadership, you know, potentially thinking beyond. And I know Atha has the, the, the really excellent leadership institute, but, but I think that like really targeted discussions for what the differences at all of those stages would be, would be great. That'd be really helpful. What's um, yours, panel? Yeah, yeah. so... I, it sort of sparked off, it has to do with Joe Roach, um, and it sparked off on the one hand by the fact that I believe there's a symposium um, in honor of, of Joe and, and his career that's uh, being organized and taking place in Chicago, his hometown, um, relatively soon. And so, you know, um, just, you know, on the one hand, reflecting on 
his career and his contributions, which we've done in the past on this podcast. Uh, but the reason I wanted to bring it up on the drafts is that um, so Joe Roach was briefly the chair of this department, the performing arts department at, at WashU. Um, and I, in the files that I inherited as chair, um, there's just a bunch of odd stuff, but it goes back decades. And there is um, a document that Joe wrote when he was chair, when this department was new. And it is about the um, valuation of artistic activity as research in a university context. And it's just remarkable. I mean, it's remarkable partly because I am realizing like, oh, wow, yeah, Joe Roach used to be here in this building and, and you know, an early part of his career took place here. Um, but it's also just his writing ability is just incredible and it's and it's you know it's a piece of administrative prose and that's a genre that's a genre that i am now uh learning more about and getting some practice on um but it is just incredible it is lucid compelling erudite pleasurable to read um and it just you know it it, it has spawned some re- reflections in my mind about um how 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 to do that particular thing well how to try to use writing to advocate for the thing you need for your department your unit um and it just makes me envious of his you know incredible talent with the written word i i will say that joe roach is the uh the mark twain of academia like he's he's traveled widely he's written extensively (laughs) like it's it's a pretty impressive guy (laughs) yeah um, well, Sarah, Harvey, thank you guys so much. Great to see you back in the old-fashioned Google Hangout on tap cyberspace huddle. Um, listeners, thanks for downloading. Thanks for streaming. And um, stay tuned. We'll have another discussion for you in about a month. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast.